All right, I want to paint an absolutely dire Ryder Cup scenario for you. Imagine it's Friday in Italy. Team USA does great in the first session. Zach Johnson has a big job ahead of him. He's got to decide who's going out in that second session. It's the most important job. So he sits down with his vice captain. He gets his pen out. All of a sudden, Scotty Scheffler bursts in through the door. Justin Thomas is with him. They say, captains, we're hungry. Where's the food? Where's lunch? We can't go out there. We haven't eaten. So all of a sudden, Zach Johnson has to throw everything aside. He's got to go figure out where in Rome you can get spaghetti or whatever else you can get. That can't happen, right? What a nightmare that would be. Zach Johnson needs people to handle the logistics for him so he can focus on the big picture stuff. The same is true when it comes to your business. Your team can make or break your game. You need the perfect pairing to support your goals and drive your business forward. Belay can help you find your perfect pairing. For over a decade, Belay has helped match busy leaders, business owners, entrepreneurs, people like you with high quality executive assistance. Their US-based specialists will help take care of the details so you can focus on what matters most. You need people to email management, you need someone to take care of your calendar, do research, client communication. They can do it all. The list of things the Belay executive assistant can do for you goes on and on. So if you're wondering how to get started with an assistant or what Belay can do for you, they have a free resource just for listeners of this podcast. Text GOLF, G-O-L-F, to 55123 to download the top 25 things an executive assistant can do for you. That's G-O-L-F to 55123. Do more of what you love and less of what you don't with a Belay executive assistant. Come on! For allied rivals, all roads lead to Rome and eternal glory. All right, ladies and gentlemen, we are back with the new Ryder Cup Radicals. This is Shane. I am here, as always, with Sleepy Joel Beal. That's fine, but the other guest I think you're going to be very excited for, Luke Kurdanin, uh, has been kicked out of the podcast for Crimes Against America <laughs> He's not here this week. He may be back next week if he files a successful appeal. But in the meantime, we have a real European, none of this transatlantic BS. Jamie Kennedy is with us. Jamie, how's it going? It's going very well. Yeah, I have my passport to prove I am 100% Scottish. So just like Bob McIntyre qualifying late, I'm last man to join the pod. Happy to be here. I've always thought it was cool on Scottish passports how they say 100% Scottish on the front. Like it's, <laughs> it's a nice touch. It's a nice touch. Uh, you are uh, you're coming to us from Wentworth this week, Jamie. You're right I in the, you're in the heart of uh, European headquarters, and I believe uh, you've just seen Shane Lowry uh, at the press conference. What's the what's the word over there? Yeah, the word is it's uh, it's obviously a big week, big week for the DP World Tour, big event uh, here at Wentworth, but it definitely. All the chat is Ryder Cup chat. This feels like the, the first day of Ryder Cup prep. You know, the teams have been out there. Shane just got off the flight. I think this morning they came back. Um, so they've all just flown in and he was talking about that. He was talking about the 12 of them being there and how fun it was. Uh, I think him and Rory flew separately from the rest because they had stuff to do in Ireland. So arrived, they played 18 holes, had a dinner, had some wine. Uh, Shane said they were all telling some stories at dinner last night, which is intriguing, but... Yeah, it definitely feels like the start of the sort of Ryder Cup kickoff. And uh, and Shane was in his defending champion today, sort of kicking that off with some chat um, from the European side. But um, yeah, the build-up is definitely starting over here. It's almost a running joke that for years you would hear the reason the Europeans 
been so much better than the Americans since the event was the camaraderie. Yeah. Uh, both sides have kind of said, hey, the Americans were tighter than believed, and maybe the Europeans are as close as they've been made out of. But it does seem like this European team, there's a, a pretty strong cohesion, and obviously there's a bit of a transition with you know four or five guys who have been stalwarts no longer there. What has been your kind of perception of how this team has gelled together thus far? Yeah, it's, it's really interesting. Shane was talking about this being the start of the next generation, and I think that's probably got a lot of credit. I think like Ludwig, Ludwig and Nikolai, um, even Seb Strecker's inclusion this time, um, I think you'll see guys like Ram and Rory are being thrust into that leadership role a lot more than maybe in the past they've sort of played it down. Um, the guys all definitely get well. I think there's a, a sort of rite of passage that these guys have when you when you join the team that you kind of know the way it's gone with the European teams in the past. So everyone comes in with a sort of a casual friendliness and chat. And he said that even the rookies were telling stories yesterday. They were encouraged to tell stories watching the Ryder Cup and tell stories that they had about the team and stuff. So there's clearly an inclusion. And I think trips like this, whilst it's been made to be a big deal this year, I think stuff like this happens a lot. They have a lot of dinners. I know at the Scottish Open, they were all meeting and having a beer and sort of catching up. So, and you know what it's like. These guys are on the road all the time. So they do make connections. I think I'd probably agree that sometimes the camaraderie is overblown a little bit with the Europeans. Sure, if you're winning, you know, you're going to be you're going to be there celebrating, having a good time together. Um, but yeah, it's, it certainly seems like it'll be an interesting group this year. Uh, four rookies on the European side, four rookies on the American side. So you've got some some sort of youth to to bed in there. But um, I think with guys like Shane on the team, I can I can imagine dinners in Rome with a lot of red wine are probably pretty fun. Uh, one thing I'm hearing, Jamie, uh, more and more is that there is a sense of resignation among the European team, a sense that this is not our year. We probably can't beat the Americans and that they have taken a call on Zach Johnson, Daddy Zach, and begging him not to hurt them too badly <laughs> in Italy. Is there truth to that from what you're seeing? Daddy Zach. I'm trying to track. I want to see if I can track the transcript and see if that was mentioned. I don't think Shane, <laughs> Shane mentioned that, funnily enough. Um I should have asked him. I think it, I think his answer would have been good. Yeah. He was he was actually asked about um some some people in the media and, and on social, I think, questioning his pick. And uh if anyone catches a video of it, you'll see Shane took about fifteen seconds of pause and I think he said he didn't want to get himself in trouble. But I think that uh inspired I think he finished third last week in Ireland at his home open. So he tries to say it didn't have any role, but I think he was he was definitely keen to sort of show off in front of his home crowd. And you know that he's got that fire to him. That's what you want to see. So um no, yeah, the there's no spice, no no daddy Johnson's chat going on but i'll get the t-shirts made up for room <laughs> joel uh speaking of that um there were some haters who just as recently as last week were questioning whether lowry should have been on the team uh, you know i i was against them the entire time uh you know very vociferously you know arguing for lowry but do you think uh what looks what was maybe a bad take last week looked even worse with with what he did at the irish open it was like a direct response like oh you think i'm in bad form here's a third place finish I mean, that's how fickle these takes are, right? I think that seem uh, filled with conviction one week and may, may, maybe look ridiculous the next. Um, that's just kind of golf. That's a, just the nature of golf. Um, I did want to, though, not to divert your question, but I wanted to throw that back to Jamie, though. Obviously, in the United States, there was a lot of pushback regarding Justin Thomas, or at least a lot mm. of noise. Was there anything even close to that with any of the European picks of, I mean, I, I know Moronk, some of his responses kind of um, caught some headlines, but was there anything 
any second guessing in terms of any of the picks or guys who are left off on the European side? Uh, I, there always is. Listen, it's kind of what, what our jobs are and the jobs of everyone on, on Twitter or X or whatever it is, is to sort of do that. Um, it seemed from a large point of view that five of the picks were pretty locked in and it was just that last one and it was it was high guard over Moronk. And one thing I have to say is, I was just telling someone in the media center here, the way that Moronk handled it last week and how open and honest he was about his emotions, I thought was really cool. Like, I think that's what people want to see is like passion, especially in Ryder Cup, like on the field, but you want to see it off and how much it means to them. And he was heartbroken, angry, pissed off or whatever you want to say and and he was able to say that and i thought that was a really cool thing that he let people in to to see how much it annoyed him um i think that was the i think the pick was more between them i I think some of the stuff afterwards about larry maybe having his pick in place of moronk i think i don't know i think that's just the echo chamber of of social chat but um i I think white guards game interestingly i was doing some research for for some video stuff that we're, we're planning for tournament week. And you can go back and watch and Hoygaard played the first couple of rounds of the Italian open this year with Rory um, or sorry, two years ago with Rory. And so you can see where they were driving the ball to. And you think of Hoygaard as having this kind of short swing and maybe hits it quite long, but he was flying Rory's drives and there were certain holes where there's dog legs that Hoygaard was taking them on. And he played, he played really well that week. Uh, but I was just blown away watching that back. It's just where he can hit the ball to. And I think it came down to that. I think, everyone kind of senses that this is going to be tee shot golf. You know, if you can put yourself in the fairway in the right place, then you're sort of half a shot up on that hole already. So um, I think that's probably what it came down to with Donald. But um, yeah, I would say it was just those, that last pick that maybe had a bit of contention. Um, just to summarize for people who might not follow us as closely, Moronk, um, you know, he was on a train coming home from Switzerland. He had a nice finish. This is, I'm reading a quote from the BBC here. See, I, I heard from him that it was tough for him as well, but then he said, I'm not going, and I kind of stopped listening. Uh, on Monday, the first half of the day was just sadness and disbelief, and then anger, because the last year and a half, I spent a lot of time thinking about this, and that was my goal, and suddenly I was just realizing it's not going to happen. Um, you know, he says, tough one to swallow. I thought I'd done enough to be on that team, but it is what it is. Yeah, that's, uh, I mean, you don't often see even for people who are heartbroken reactions, that sort of like, even Keegan Bradley's was kind of like, I still love this team. Right. Like, you know, he wasn't, he obviously expressed that he was unhappy, but that's cool that Moronk did that. Um, do you think it leaves Donald open to second guessing if someone like, you know, Hoygaard doesn't do well, or is it kind of like, is it just too marginal? Do people not really care about the 11th and 12th pick? Like you're, you know, flipping a coin between Moronk and Hoygaard, like, is Donald pretty much safe from any kind of you know rebound on that one? Certainly, I mean, my take my take would be that when it comes down to tournament week, that's all kind of forgotten about. You know, I, I don't think anyone's expecting um, Hoygaard to necessarily play more than a couple of times. He's got good course form. He's kind of a guy built for the future as well. You're just betting him in now before potentially in a Wayrider Cup in a couple of years, where he seems more of a lock to be long term than maybe Moronk is, but. Um, no, I, and I, I love the fairy tale aspect of him being on a train from Switzerland, getting the news. It's almost like it was some sort of movie scene. <laughs> Just call, call in Luke Donald as I'm looking over like the Swedish mountain range and yeah. uh, ready for this romantic like fairy tale ending, and then it's like pulled away from him. <laughs> Couldn't help but it, think about that. But. It, I, I'm, I'm with you, Jamie. I think it's the, I think it was the right pick, and Shane, I think you mostly agreed. Just the unfortunate. Fortunate nature of how sports discussion is in today is 
no one ever really, if your team loses, rarely is it, hey, the other team was just better. The next day is always someone has to be blamed for it, right? No one ever wins anymore if it's someone lost. So this, the the, the way the, the Ryder Cup works nowadays, I mean, we see it all the time on this side. Like 2018, I mean, yeah, some of those captain's picks didn't work out, but Europeans were just a better team. That's a really hard swallow for Americans to take and said that it's, you play the blame game and obviously didn't help that Patrick Reed then threw half the team under the bus. But um, I, I'm with you. Like if, if your hopes are riding on Moronk being on the team or off the team, I, I think we're kind of losing sight of what's really at stake here. Um, just to clarify, nobody was literally thrown under a bus. If anybody's listening and, and taking these <laughs> or a words. train, yeah, or a train. Uh, uh, no, right. No, I think that's a great point, Joel. I think, I would agree with you both that I don't think this is going to like be a big deal for Donald. I do think on the American side of Justin Thomas lays an egg, that's going to be ripe for, uh, you know, recriminations and everything else on Twitter, but be that as it may. Um, one thing we did want to talk about that's Jamie, as you pointed out before the podcast, it's kind of been the big discussion right now. Both teams recently took the trip to Italy uh, and the course setup uh, is going to be, seemingly i correct me if i'm wrong but seemingly identical to paris where you have this resort course <laughs> that you're just going to like use the opportunity to narrow the fairways and make the the grass insanely thick we've all seen pictures on twitter is that what you're getting i mean like you were talking about like you know lowry was asked a question about losing balls and stuff like that is it just mm -hmm. going to be unbelievable rough there yeah, Shane talks about that. He was asked about it. He said uh, there was a few lost balls in practice yesterday. He claims that his group of four only lost one, and that was uh, that was certainly the best out of the group. So that's jarring to hear <laughs> the guys three weeks out losing balls at the, the course. But um, from what I can tell, he's, I think he the adjective he used was basically saying the first cut rough is US, U.S. Open style. If you miss the fairway, you're in U.S. Open style first cut. The second cut is just don't go there. You're hacking out if you can find it. So mm. I think it, that historically plays into the U.S. way. But I'd be curious to get your guys' thought on it. And I've, I've pitched this to, to people at the company before. This idea that I get the feeling that the European style of play is kind of is dead now. Like there's no, you know, the Luke Donald, Lee Westwood, Colin Montgomery, Bernard Langer style of just like plotting your way down the hole and not worrying about distance. Doesn't really feel like it kind of translates into 2023. You look at guys like our best players now are sort of American college guys from the States, you know, Victor Hovland, John Ram, you know, look at Rory, look at Ludwig, all these guys, they just hit it like, the modern way is not the European way. And so when I think Shane was asked, you know, do you think the course set up and the way they're making it tight and with the thick rough, do you think that suits the Europeans? And he, he said, you know, I'm confident that they'll set it up, you know, as best as they can for us. I just, I struggle to see the difference in the two teams necessarily on paper, like we did 10, 20, 30 years ago. So. Yeah. I think that's a couple of things in that, right. JB, like one, the way modern golf is played, it's not so much an art anymore. It's more of a science. You hear, you hear the term track man golfer a lot. Mm, mm. And so these guys just kind of know their numbers. They know what they know statistically what's the best, out, best outcomes. Um, I think that the, taking the nuance out of the setups a little bit, is just a byproduct of our times. Uh, the other bit is so many of the guys on the European team play in the United States. And that's just a, a a different type of golf than maybe what the European model was maybe 10, 15 years ago. But even what you see on the DP world tour now, for the most part mirrors what you see on the PGA tour. Uh, so I know there's a bit of romanticism about course setups and different styles of play. 
unfortunately, I just don't think uh, it's just not as drastic anymore as it was, heck, even what we saw in Paris. Um, but certainly 10, 15 years ago. But I don't know, Shane, am I dismissing that too much? You know, the only pushback I would have uh, is they are so heavy into the stats and data, and, and that plays into the course setup that it's almost just like I know this is arguing logically from, you know, from the from behind almost, but if there wasn't a good reason to do it, they wouldn't do it, I think. Mm. And it's the same and the same with the US, right? Like whistling straights, the Europeans were all kind of annoyed because they fundamentally are like, oh yeah, whistling straights is kind of a European course. You can't really do much to change it, right? It's narrow, it's kind of linksy, you know, vaguely. And then they were like, oh yeah, the US just mowed everything. <laughs> like, like the entire course they mowed. And uh, and the Europeans were like, oh, I guess they can do a little bit to change it. And they were like, I remember Poulter made a comment. They were sort of annoyed at that, uh, that there was just nothing punitive there. So it's like every time it's in America, right? Hazeltine was a classic example of like, oh, let's just turn this into a cow pasture and maybe we'll remove some trees too. Uh, versus Paris, versus Italy, where they're tightening it. So... You know, I, I unfortunately don't have enough expertise or, or, you know, the analytical background to say why or to say what's telling them to do this. But I bet if you asked, you know, the 21st group who worked with them back then or Eduardo Molinari, who's kind of in charge this year, I bet they have a good reason for it. Right. I mean, there's yeah. got kind of like there's got to be they're not just doing things. It doesn't happen in the Ryder Cup anymore that they just do things on form. Like they do things logically and for like a, a measurable reason. I want to one interesting example I remember from for the people that don't know, I I worked for Ryder Cup Europe from 2014 to 2018, was on site and sort of a little bit behind the scenes, got to see some of it, not quite as close as you'd imagine with like the core setup stuff. But one thing I remember from 2018, similar, and that's the sort of poster child of the, the Ryder Cup that stats won almost for the Europeans, um, was that obviously back then you had like Bryson, DJ, Tiger, Phil, you know, guys that maybe were long, but not that straight. So you set up the course nice and narrow for them. But one of the things that Bjorn and his team worked out was that the wide miss for both teams, the U.S. wide miss was significantly, you know, maybe it's only five or six feet, but on average was wider than the European miss. So one of the interesting things that they did, which I'm not sure if you guys had heard, was the initial course setup they went and looked at it and they, thomas bjorn actually instructed them they moved the rope line back two meters on almost every long par four and par five basically the holes where it had long rope they moved it back two meters so that when the u.s team would miss into those air that into that two meter strip that it wouldn't be bedded down by people walking on it it would be as thick and juicy as possible and they'd sort of figured out that that two meter strip on either side was basically like only americans will go here <laughs> And so they just wanted to make it as penal as possible. So I wonder with the, some of the core setup, everyone's talking about this thick rough being off the fairways. I bet if you went and looked at where it pinches in, the, the pinch areas are probably exactly, you know, towards American tendencies. And, you know, I guess it'll bear out. And like a lot of things, you know, the result will will prove it. But I'm really curious to see how that sets up because, yeah, in my, in my head and on paper, the, the two teams seem like similar style. But, yeah, I'm sure Donald and Dodo, uh, sorry, Eduardo Molinari, his nickname's Dodo. I'm sure that they probably know it a lot better than us losers. That is fascinating. <laughs> that is so fascinating that they would do that. And that's the kind of thing yeah. that you know they do, but you just, they are so secretive, all the stats people, because obviously year to year they're doing similar things and they don't want the other yeah. side to know and everything like that. So you don't get a lot of that. I talk with uh, Jason Aquino, who's the head of scouts consulting. They're the American ones. I talk with him all the time and he's probably the most knowledgeable Ryder Cup human on the earth. This is the kind of guy who, when he was a kid, 
would like VHS tape all the Ryder Cups and the coverage after <laughs> and then watch them like like almost like obsessively watch them after long before he ever worked. And, he, you know, he's a he, then he became like a um, Department of Defense consultant where he would do war games in the future. So his brain is completely designed oh. for this stuff. But you can't get anything out of him. That's the ultimate curse of it. It's like one day I hope this dude writes a book because that right there, like that detail is amazing, right? Like mm-hmm. what, what the kind of thinking, and that like, is a credit to Bjorn too, to think, oh yeah, the, we, if they hit it here and, the, and it's trampled down, they're going to get free lies, but we want them to be in the shit basically, right? So they come. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I love that. I, I think that's like you could you could easily write a book if you could get any of these people to talk. So uh yeah, Joel, any other thoughts on course setup, basically, just in terms of, you know, is is this going to scare the Americans? Is it good that they went there as a team? Like, how important is that? All that kind of stuff. I think it's just more, <clears throat> listen, it, it's, it is, I, I talked to one guy on, who went over and basically he just mentioned, well, it's better than not seeing it, right? Um, he said, that being said, he said nothing really surprised him. Um, he just more enjoyed getting to know a couple guys uh, that he really, even though he sees on a week to week basis, just never really got a chance to talk with. Um, really, you know, Spieth obviously didn't go because his wife uh, is getting close to birth and Xander and um, Patrick had family obligations as well. Um, I, I do think sometimes when you see the photos circulating of the rough, um, depending on where those photos are taken, I mean, we see this every U.S. Open of, oh, man, how these guys are going to chop it out. And, you know, I, I think sometimes we make a little bit. It, it's easy to take a photo and extrapolate a lot from it. Um, like, Jamie, I think it was you that actually made yeah. a point. Of, hey, I, uh, <laughs> I got in trouble from my old uh, – so I used to run, the, like, social stuff and content for Ryder Cup Europe, and obviously there's a team that did it for America. So Ryder Cup USA tweeted out a video of the rough and uh, – me being me and just being an idiot, I uh, noticed where that that video was taken from, and uh, pointed out to everyone on Twitter that it was uh, the equivalent on the 16th hole, which is a short par four, of hitting a 140 yard tee shot that missed the fairway by 40 yards. That's where the <laughs> that's where the video was taken from. So I was like, eh, you might be uh, you know skewing it a little bit. And that's not to say the rough is bad, but I just I, yeah, I thought it was funny that they would. No, but at the same, you know, context it matters because I remember yeah. I guess it was the 2017 U.S. Open at Aaron Hills when Kevin Na kind of had that yeah. video, and this was coming off of what happened with Dustin Johnson at Oakmont. The USGA was very leery about not pissing off the players, and yet. I remember somebody later that week on Saturday telling me, like, here's where Nod was dropping it. Like, if he did it there, he, he should get penalized. So, um, and part of it, too, is that, you know, it's a dead week in golf. So, there's some way people just need something to talk about, right? Um, I, I do, though, think it's as much as we've heard the parallels, uh, it's going to be stuff like Paris. I don't, I get the sense, at least now this person didn't play in Paris, but he got the sense from guys who did that it's going to be a little bit more manageable and a little bit more breathing room. Um, but again, that's just off of a, you know, a couple texts I received. Mm-hmm. So we'll see how that plays out. Uh, Jamie, I can tell you have one of the classic uh, loud radio people next to you somewhere close. <laughs> and I just want to bring it up because it's so funny that I thought these people stopped existing somewhere around 1928 <laughs> until I got into golf media rooms. And there's always like one guy in the radio booth or if there's no radio booth in the front, who's just screaming into his mic. He's like, welcome to Wentworth. Hey, we've got a wonderful day. Uh, Justin Thomas will take the lead. And you're like, I'll be that 
guy. Who does that anymore? Uh, he also sounds American. Is it an American that's doing this? Oh, they're all over here. You guys are taking over. You know how much you guys love the Europeans. So yeah, I guess you're over here scouting. Yeah. Media scouts. <laughs> well, I did want to, um, uh, I did want to bring up next, uh, uh, Jamie, some of the work you did for Ryder Cup Europe, and you were with uh, you worked with the European Tour a little bit. There was a video that came out. Um, I saw it yesterday. I don't know exactly when it came out, but it was the concept was worst pro am partner ever, and it was this guy that they stuck with Richard Manzel, who was an actor, but Richard Manzel didn't know that, and he was just awful. He was screaming, yelling, asking to use his clubs. Uh, it, it was just one of the funniest things I've seen. I know Joel, you weren't quite as taken with it as I was. But I thought it was hysterical, and uh, like I said, it segues into something I want to get into later. But you worked on that side of it, right, Jamie? You saw up close. Yeah. Everybody always talks like the you know the DP World Tour runs a masterclass in these hilarious social media videos. So what's that? What's that like? How do they have the freedom to do that? Right? We don't see that in the PGA Tour as much. Uh, how does that all come about? It's like it's it almost seems like really good professional uh, comedy production. Yeah, I, I think early on we were, you know, we're always competing with the PGA Tour for eyeballs and for attention and stuff like that. And I think being more of the challenger rather than the established PGA Tour is very clean and American. You know, we had to sort of think outside the box. So we had probably had more freedom that way. Um, so, yeah, it was it was fun creating all the ideas. I have to give actually Keith Pelley a bit of credit. I remember when he came in. That was sort of midway through when we'd started to do some of that stuff. And we sat down with him, you know, got called into the headmaster's office and we we're all expecting, you know, right, that's the fun, you know, just calm it down a little bit. And he said to us, listen, keep going. He's like, I'm going to give you a year. Go and do it for a year. Do whatever you want. Um, showcase all the players. Make it funny. Make it fun. And, like, enjoy it. And then in a year's time, we'll come back and let's try to make some money off it and, you know, use it as a, as a branding tool for sponsors and things like that, which they do now in a, in a good way. Um, but, you know, ultimately what it came down to is we always just wanted to show a little bit back to what Joel was talking about with like the camaraderie of the Europeans and European tour was we always thought like the personality of our players was amazing. Like these guys all travel together, you know, all the cliches that they would have dinner together, they would stay together. So the personalities were there and we just wanted to figure out ways to sort of showcase it as much as possible. So we just come up like we literally would sit in a room at the start of the year, whiteboard, no idea is a bad idea. I mean, you've seen some of the ideas that we got away with, so you know how crazy <laughs> some of them were, but there was some on the cutting room floor, but and it was, yeah, the first few months, you know, you're trying to convince a player to do something that's going to make them, you know, make fun of them or be silly. Or we we hired a child actor to interview, you know, Rory McIlroy and people like that. And, you know, it was, it was quite a convincing, but it, there was definitely a, a point, you know, probably 2016 or something where there was a tipping point where players then started coming to us. You know, they wanted to be part of it. They saw the exposure from it. They saw the success the videos were having. And then from then on, it just becomes so much easier to convince players to do it, to to convince people that it's worth budget to promote them, to produce them. And, uh, God, they were so much fun to work on. Uh, and yeah, the one yesterday that came out was, was great. Uh, the pro am partner, I'm going to be shouting biscuit at my golf ball for, for months <laughs> to come. I think. You biscuit. <laughs> yeah, biscuit. Joel, do you have a favorite one? I, I have one in my head that I, um, that I have, if you have one in the chamber, let it go. <laughs> Um, I have, uh, mine was the support group. Um, if, if you remember that one with, they're all kind of like mm -hmm. doing the confessions and it was just, I, I know like Hatton was in it and Fleetwood. I actually can't remember a single line from it right now, but I just remember every single bit of it being so good and just being impressed. Like you were talking about Jamie with the buy-in from the players and how willing they were to do all this stuff. And also shocked at how good they were at acting. <laughs> 
Like, not, not all of them. Not all of them, to be fair. But there's so many. Like, Eddie Pepperell. I'm like, he could be a sitcom star. Like, Eddie Pepperell reminds me of Ricky Gervais a little bit. Um, I like, think, as you can tell from, uh, from Xander Shoffley's latest uh, promotional video, that maybe, yeah. maybe maybe this isn't something that's associated to the Americans quite as well. I think, Joel, you said in a DM yesterday, imagine them doing what they did to Richard Manziel to Patrick Cantley. And it, it would be hysterical, but it also would be like, I think there'd be like recriminations afterward, right? They'd be talking, it'd be like, we don't do this to our players or something like that. Like it just it just doesn't seem like the kind of thing that could happen in the US. And And you're right, Jamie, it's like a beautiful confluence of like, okay, we're the challengers, so we have to go try to do something different. The players are maybe a little more easygoing, have maybe a little bit more of a sense of humor, so they're going to buy in eventually. I just think it's really neat how uh, how that's all worked out. And you, I mean, Jamie, you were on site, you know, the Molinari Fleetwood when they were in bed together with the trophy. Like you, yeah. were, you were on the front lines for that stuff, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Like you say, I think players picked up on it. They knew the popularity that it would have, and you know, even we we used to run like the the fastest hole in golf, which was like the players trying to play the par five as quick as possible. I remember when we did that. The second time around, we got multiple teams to come and do it. And all we had to do is recruit one player from each country, and then they went and recruited everyone else. So it was this sort of buy-in that, again, like, you know, go and get your friends. So Poulter pulled in the English team and the Spanish team and whatever else. And, yeah, I think it's, there, there's definitely a different vibe. But we've all been around golf tournaments. You go into the players' lounge uh, American event, and, you know, they're in their teams, whereas over here – Maybe less so now than a few years ago, but they're, you know, they're sitting together. And funnily enough, like, I, I tell this to people and people can't believe it. I remember when Patrick Reed played a couple of years on tour, he traveled the world. He played in Hong Kong. He played in China. He played in South Africa, played everywhere. And I remember seeing him in hotels and I remember talking to him and saying how much he'd enjoyed some of the English guys on tour, teaching him how to play snooker at night. And so, like, and that was just that's just part of the European tour that you're all staying in these same hotels in like strange countries in Switzerland or in Hong Kong or wherever. And so you kind of like you're not going from you know uh, chain hotel in America to chain hotel in America that um, you kind of fall in with other people a bit more easily. And I thought if you can break down Patrick Reed and make him a likable guy in the evenings, then the tour must be doing something right. You, I think uh, you, I think you just hit on it, Jamie. There is a bit of a difference of a socioeconomic um disparity between the two uh tours i, I think you're the being encased by teams rather than your fellow, mm. fellow players is a part of that i think another thing unfortunately is it gets it's very dispiriting as, as one that lives in the united states to not see the tour i mean this isn't just a year you know one or two, excuse me one or two year aberration that the dp world tour is done i mean this is almost a decade now mm. of content and the and the pga tour just won't go that way it's a bit of I don't want to say arrogance, but almost like a, a dismissiveness of you mentioned being the contenders. I think there are some at tour headquarters who look at these videos as, you know, like operations you'd see at a minor league baseball, right? <laughs> without, without realizing that most major league baseball teams have then copied the, what happens at minor league games to get fans more engaged. It, it's not, um, this is entertainment at the end of the day. We all love it. it it's our passion, but at the end of the day, it's entertainment and, Unfortunately, we the, the folks who run things over here haven't quite put those together. Um, it's really it's really dispiriting because <laughs> you're right. You do see stuff like the Xander thing. Go you know, maybe this why it doesn't work. But I, I do think there are <laughs> personalities uh, that that would shine, and and I think the tour would be better off for it. They would follow the DP 
Forest lead on a few of these things. Uh, speaking of which, though, if VP World Tour doesn't do a Xander parody account uh, <laughs> off that thing, I'm going to be so upset. <laughs> well, the funny thing is, like, if, if the DP World Tour did something with Xander, I bet they'd make him look good. And I bet they'd put him in a place where he was less stiff. You know what I mean? Like, he's just being asked to read a script here, and it's it's terrible. But I do want to do one. I want to ask one quick question to Jamie about this based on something you just said. And a thought just came into my head, and bear with me here, but my nanny went to a place called Ocracoke Island off of the coast of North Carolina for a vacation this weekend. It's the kind of place it takes like five hours to get there by ferry. And I was reading about it. This is a place that was settled, you know, initially when people came over to America. But there was this big change in shipping traffic that had this freak effect of isolating it for something like, you know, 70 years or 100 years or something like that. And what happened was they developed this accent that is still around today among the old players, among the old people on the island, that sounds basically like you're from Yorkshire or somewhere on the east coast of England. And I'm telling you, it's right off the coast of North Carolina. Are you right? I mean, it's like significantly off the coast, but it's, you know, it's much closer to North Carolina than anything else. And they kind of have this like, it's like half English, half Maine lobsterman type thing, completely out of place. But it's changing now, right? The world is changing. And so now like the young people are basically talking like either, you know, Tom Brokaw, like your average Midwest sort of flat American <laughs> accent or with a North Carolina, a more standard Southern accent. And Jamie, one thing you had just said, here's where this all comes full circle. I was going to say, um, here's where it comes full taking circle notes here. No, it's like, but you were talking about, you know, the Europeans are, you know, they, they're, they have dinner with each other. They don't have their own teams, mm. their own units, but you did allude to the fact that things are changing. And, you know, Paul mm. McGinley was on the golf channel the other day and, and talking a little bit about the, you know, the year they drank 72 bottles of wine, but how, when he was captain, some people just didn't drink, right. They didn't mm. do that. So is there <laughs> where this all comes around? Is there an okra coke? island effect with like the young people now they talk like north carolinians <laughs> is there an americanization a globalization effect happening on the dp world tour is it getting more like the pga tour and is that going to get worse if you know saudi money comes into or is more money going to ruin the character or change fundamentally the character of what made it different and what made it special that's a good question. I, I'd actually push back on it a little bit more than you might expect. I think whilst um, whilst the top guys definitely have their teams and stuff like that, I think when you see guys like Ram and Victor and those guys coming back on tour, it's it just feels a lot more relaxed and interconnected here. I don't know. I, I can't really put my finger on why that is or if it's if it's maybe even Ryder Cup related, deep rooted or something like that. But the guys have their teams that so are definitely moving that way, but it's probably just a little bit slower than you think. Mm. Um, I think, you know, over here, if you're flying to Hong Kong next week and then you're going to Portugal the week after, you tend to be on the same flights. You're not flying private anywhere. You're staying in the same hotel. So just by proximity, these guys see a lot more of each other. Um, and that probably leads into just relationships and and camaraderie between them. So uh, it's probably a slower movement than you think, but I'll uh, I'll definitely be looking up this North Carolina island. I wasn't sure where you were going there for a second. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Circuitous route. Hey, look, it's one of those yeah. weeks where it's kind of like a down week in the Ryder Cup cycle, right? Our captain's picks yeah. have been out. We've talked that out. So now we're talking about weird islands off the coast of uh, North Carolina. Um, <laughs> and, and this all leads to something I wanted to bring up, a, a kind of theme I've noticed. The first tournament I ever covered was in Medina, was the Ryder Cup at Medina. Uh, and right from the start, I would see these examples or people telling me about examples of American journalists or people that are very much inside the golf world, you know, who, who know the personalities rooting for Europe, um, 
which I always thought was an interesting <laughs> phenomenon. I don't think I've ever really rooted for anything except a close Ryder Cup because I saw one at Medina and it was amazing and I haven't seen one since and the world hasn't seen one since. Um, but Joel, I want to go to you first. Have you encountered this thing too? And, you know, from what I can tell, it's based on, you know, we like the Europeans more. We just think they're like more interesting personalities. So we kind of pull for them. Um, is it something you've noticed? Is it something you've experienced? Like what, what is your kind of uh, expertise with this type of thing? Are you ready to pledge your allegiance to the blue and yellow? That's what he's asking. <laughs> Are you ready to call him Daddy Luke? <laughs> yeah, more in the North America. Um, yeah. <laughs> on the media front, it is interesting. Like, I do think it's there is something to be tapped in, at least historically, that from those who were on the teams, the European players tended to be those who were more social and more agreeable with media. So I think on that front, that's why you see it. But I think there's also something to be said about this provincialness that seems to be rampant in every other sport in America. There's a, for a reason, there's this endearing quality of the European team of, I mean, let's be honest, you look at some of the main stars over the last 20 years, there are people who play a lot of golf here for the most part, right? Um, I mean, Rory is if he, if he's not one, he'd be one A in terms of or one B in terms of the most popular guys here. Rom's really well liked. Um, I, I think that part just the the team you're rooting against are guys you see on a week to be week basis helps. Whereas if you're in Europe, you might only see these guys you know once every couple of years, depending on where the opens at that year or if they have um, you know sponsor or endorsement obligations to make. I think that can be part of it. Um, I do think there is. A little bit, though, too, of, Jamie, when you mentioned the, the DP World Tour is a bit of the, historically, the challenge tour. I think there is a little bit of something on the shoulders of the Europeans that it, it's, it brings them together, whereas the U.S., it's not as life or death when it comes to these type of things. Um, I, I, that's a very broad overview, but at the same time, from what I've experienced at Ryder Cups, it seems to be what's kind of at play. There's probably a couple of things. I mean, I'd love to say it's just Americans glory hunting and picking a team that's winning all the time, and that was been the Europeans <laughs> as of late, but that might be projection. But uh, I think there's, a, there's a little bit, I think, I, I went to college in the States, and I follow college sports. I mean, uh, U.S. sports pretty closely, and I think there's always this idea that you want to tear down the people that are on top. So when the Patriots are on top, you kind of you want to, yeah, support the the contender like we've talked about before so there's a little bit of that underdog mentality that's more fun to get embroiled in rather than oh yeah we're, we think we're gonna win and we should win and it's kind of the other thing back to what we've been talking about before is that you know you look at the european team and it there's so many different types of people and personalities and obviously countries and cultures there that that's attractive as well rather than the sort i wouldn't say the american team's always been like cookie cutter like you know you know country club kids that have gone to college and then made it on tour, but they're probably a little bit more samey than the European team when you've got like Tommy Fleetwood and then you've got Victor Hovland and Rory and all these guys with different accents and different backgrounds and stuff. I think people, you know, one of the things we talked about when we used to always do this sort of content on the European tour is we just wanted to make personalities out of players. And we used to always bring up the analogy that when you saw the top 10 on the leaderboard, you wanted to relate to something with every player that wasn't just how they were playing. So, oh, Tommy's the guy that does this and Victor's the guy that likes heavy rock music. And it's cliche to, to put these guys into like the buckets of stuff they do off the course, but we, we sort of took it upon ourselves to try and tell that story as much as possible. And I don't think that's what led to them being 
likable, but I think that's what their personalities did anyway. So, um, yeah, it'll be really interesting to see this year. You know, last Ryder Cup being with no fans, Shane was asked about that today. And he said it can only make a difference if you've got, you know, fans cheering for you. And when you make putts, there's a reaction and things like that. And I think the sort of pent up anticipation of this Ryder Cup, I think, will will play into that. And having European fans there in Rome, cool city, easy city to get to. Uh, I'm going as a fan this year, so excuse me if you see me in the front row cheering and half cut at seven in the morning, but that's the goal. So, <laughs> <laughs> um, if there was an AI, if they developed a statistical AI bot that tried to give the best possible advice, do you think it would suggest to the Americans that they should unleash a global pandemic between now and the Ryder Cup? <laughs> like, like if the ultimate thing is, uh, is no is fans are a huge advantage. Like how do we get no fans? Well, we have a recent example of how to do that. There um, might be some really tough security at Beth Page Bike for all the European fans trying to get in some <laughs> deep background checks. Yeah. Um, but on, on this topic, one other thing I thought of um, that I want to run by you guys is this idea that when you're the underdog, it's so much easier to, and Jamie, you were kind of alluding to this too, but it's so much easier to have an identity, a group identity. Whereas I think when you're America and you're like, okay, well, you know, we are the preeminent golf power. And again, not in terms of the Ryder cup, but in terms of like, you know, major winners and things like that. Uh, and you know, we have a larger golf playing population base and all that kind of stuff. And just the natural arrogance that comes with being an American. And I say that with love, right? It's my country, but I think it may be harder than it would be for the Europeans to look at a team like Europe and go, Oh yeah, we want to beat them. We want, you know, like mm -hmm. it's so much easier. And Jamie, I would imagine that there's no European journalists who are like, you know what? I kind of, I think I'm going to pull for the Americans this year. Right. Like, like yeah. it, it doesn't, does not happen the other way around. Right. Yeah, it's odd. I've ne yeah, I've literally never heard that. And yeah, I was saying to you earlier, I wonder if there's like a, a slight, you know, I went to college in, in Florida and everyone would ask me where I was from. I'd say, oh, I'm from Scotland. And they'd say, oh, so am I. I'd be like, oh, I'm pretty sure you're like fourth generation from Texas or something. But, you know, there's, there's just a want to be something not other than American, but you, the, the international flair and culture that you could be assigned to is, is interesting. And I, one of the things that always makes me giggle and, you know, pre Ryder cup press conferences and just other sports is how much, how desperate captains and managers and stuff are to assert themselves as underdogs, even no, if they're not. Yeah. I mean, I, I think it's, I think it's clear maybe this time around and has been with the course out, maybe not so, but ever, I mean, Zach Johnson will play the underdog card in his press conference and say, you know, we haven't won here in 30 years. So it doesn't matter who, who we are. And the, just scrambling to be considered the underdogs, I think is something about it just, you know, riles up the team spirit that you're, you're having to fight against the the bigger power. And it just always makes me entertain. I just wish somebody would come and be like, you know, we're the favorites. We should be the favorites. We're going to win. <laughs> I mean, this is interesting, right? Like this might be the first Ryder Cup where both teams play the no one believes in us card uh, <laughs> yeah. but but coaches play that card because it works right it yeah. is a galvanizing force um i think both teams actually do have merit to making that claim <laughs> i think it is nice though because i think the, one of the things that it's funny if you break down why americans would pull for europeans there was a sense that especially during the tiger phil years and really until 2016 there was a sense that it was 12 cars for 12 players in the locker room there mm -hmm. is it's funny because as much as the youth revolution, I think has ushered in this era of professional golf, what you kind of see in maybe professional basketball in the United States of maybe guys are a little bit too friendly with each other. Um, that has actually 
the up, upshot of that is now more cohesion that perhaps wasn't there uh, on the United States side for the last decade or two. Um, again, I know we, I know we really bank on that with the locker room is maybe too much, but I think for the first time in forever, and you really saw the dividends of this in, in at twenty twenty one of Wilson Streets. These guys do seem to enjoy each other's company, and what you know, I know analytics say that doesn't really matter. I also don't think that doesn't hurt, and I think it makes both teams a little bit easier to root for just because it's easier to root for guys who seem like they care as much as they do, you know, that they're rooting for someone else. Whereas, you know, I do think have not having tiger there helps because, you know, tiger was a guy that was such a big personality. He basically made his, his whole career is built on killing everybody else, right? Make beating everybody else down. And now to get someone like that to try to play nice with everybody else, it was just, that's a really hard switch to turn on and off. And he was such a big presence that, I think kind of having that elephant out of the room, obviously having Phil out of the room, I mean, this will be the first Ryder Cup probably since, what, 95, or no, 93, that Phil for Tiger hasn't been there. So um, they, this really is kind of uh, everyone's on the same kind of equal plane for the United States. Uh, if, you, if, you, if you're one that banks on team chemistry equating to success, this is the team, that this is the avatar for that concept. Do you think... I was just going to say, Jamie, do you think before four ball matches, they should have taken Tiger and said, you know, okay, your opponents today are Luke Donald, Darren Clark, and Steve Stricker. You've got to go beat all three of them. <laughs> just not even told him it was a team format. To say, you're out there playing three guys, and you've got <laughs> maybe that would have been the best thing to do for Tiger. Yeah, one of, one of the things I find interesting is you guys, uh, I think, will agree is the. The interesting thing for Zach Johnson ahead of this one is uh, I think what you're touching on, Joel, is uh, the, the chemistry is there now with the Americans. So it's very easy to pick teams based on chemistry, which is kind of what the Europeans have done historically. You know, Sevioli, um, Justin Rose, Henrik Stenson, and you know, you had these pairings that sort of seem to work well, Molinari and Fleetwood, and you know, they work well because they win and then they go back out and win again. But um for a long time, Europeans uh, have sort of used the data to sort of pair up, and you, you find these pairings, you're like, that's a really odd pairing, but no, there must be science behind it. And uh, I think the Americans used to probably struggle to do that, right? Who, who Whose game fits with Tigers? Whose game fits with Phil? Whose game fits with Jim Furyk? Whereas now you go in and it's like, oh, well, uh, Schiffler's going to play with Burns because they're best friends. And of course, you're going to put Spieth and Thomas out together. And you would never pair anyone else other than Zandler and Kentley. Mm-hmm. And it's, it seems like it's an easy avenue to go down. So I'm interested to see if... If that's the case, because it feels quite flippant to do that, to say, oh, well, they get along well and sh- sh- that should make sense. But obviously there is an X factor. You're going to play well if you're you know, comfortable and things like that. But I'm interested to see if Zach Johnson sort of leans into that more or if he's going to assert himself more and say, no, you're actually going to play with this guy because the nerd herd or whoever he calls them are suggesting that it's, you know, the numbers otherwise. It, I do think it'll be interesting yeah. Justin Thomas has become the easy guy to blame for this camaraderie old boys club thing. <laughs> and yet really, I think the, the bigger indication will be Scotty Shuffler, Sam Burns, just because yes, they both played poorly at presence. Cup. Burns actually played okay for the most part. The record didn't really, that uh, wasn't a good indicator of performance. And yet afterwards I did hear from a couple people saying, you know, numbers said these guys really shouldn't have been together. So the mm-hmm. fact that they run that back out, I think that will be, a bigger nod more so than a speed Thomas or a, a Thomas Fowler pairing of how much of this buddy, buddy 
thing is at play rather than what the numbers, you know, are, are they put, are they actually banking too much on chemistry after ignoring it in the past? Um, I do think though, at the same time, Thomas has become this uh, scapegoat for something when really, I mean, Shane, I know we've talked about this. I mean, the guy has had the best team USA record, best five year stretch of any USA player in the last 30 years. And I, I think for, just because people like to argue, unfortunately, People are ignoring that and instead focusing on, well, he's friends with everybody, so that's why he got picked. Um, yeah, so it's silly. It's silly. I think um, one thing I do know from the um, scouts consulting people is that I, I, they always say this, but I think I believe them that it's not an exact science, right? So when you determine a pairing, mm-hmm. that might work, but they do give them like red light, green light, yellow light type things where like you, you know, they'll they can come to them and say, well, you know, Scotty and you know and Sam Burns are great friends. What do you think? And uh, I think you're right. From what I understand, and I don't have this from anybody on the ground, but I think that was more red lightish. But they kind of just did it anyway. And so that's the other thing to keep in mind is that the yeah the the pairings you see sometimes the captains are just overruling them, or they're saying like mm. you know like Scotty Scheffler's not going to be happy unless we put him with Sam Burns, and so we're going to have to do it. Or again, I'm not saying that happened, but that's kind of the mindset of like it's not just we're not strictly going by what the printout says here. Um, yeah, and I guess the last thing, Jamie, or for both of you guys. You know, you mentioned that Zach Johnson is kind of taking on the underdog role or really trying to push that narrative. And Joel, I agree with you that both sides have merit when they say they're the underdog here. <laughs> but I think what's funny is it's just another indication of something that keeps happening in the Ryder Cup, which is the Americans finally, after decades, learning their lesson. Because you mentioned, Jamie, you know, like the underdog thing has long been a European like talking point, but that they, they try to push McGinley, like pushed it like crazy. But at Glen Eagles, McGinley would be like, you know, the Americans are so mighty and we're just happy to be here. And Tom Watson would be like, <laughs> yeah, you're darn right. <laughs> like, like, like Tom Watson would basically walk right into the trap. But I think for years, the Americans, you know, I think it was Raymond Floyd came over and said, you know, we've got the best, this is the best golfing team on the planet or something. Or mm. uh, the Americans would kind of walk into that. And that's another thing with, almost like the Americans had to overcome their own ego of being Americans and realize that, Hey, wait a second. They're kind of jujitsuing us and using that to, to beat us over and over again. But is there that sense on the European side that, you know, this is becoming a lot more difficult now that the Americans finally have, you know, pulled their heads out, (laughs) so to speak. Yeah, I think so. I think the thing that's going to, uh, be a presence across all the preparation for this year and especially in those media interviews it's going to be a very easy thing for the americans to lean on as oh well we haven't done this in 30 years so it doesn't matter that we're the good team we haven't done this in 30 years so we're the underdogs so we haven't done it so like the proof's in the pudding we haven't won so that makes us not as good over here so i think everyone will sort of use that as their backbone and say oh you know well we haven't won here um which is true, but you know, like Shane was just in the press conference here an hour ago saying, uh, asking about what happened last time around in the Ryder Cup in 21. And he was like, Well, Scotty Scheffler was the worst player on the American team by numbers. And five months later, he was world number one. So we just kind of walked into a juggernaut. Like we just, everyone was playing well. And he'd rightfully say, and you guys would agree that the European team's playing really well at the moment. So I am, um, I'd still, I'm, I think they're still underdogs to do it, but I think it's a lot closer than it maybe was four or five months ago. But I, uh, I imagine that the, the 30 year number will be, we should drink every time they say that in press conferences. Shit, uh, Shane, uh, regarding the merit claim, I mean, yes, go Jamie, what you just mentioned the 30 year thing is going to be mentioned ad nauseum. I think the, if you look at the actual individual makeup though, being the underdog speaks to so many of these guys. It's not just something, 
it's not this false narrative. I, you know, Max Homo is a guy who, what, five years ago was needed to birdie four of his last five holes just to kind of stay in the corner fairy tour finals. Um, he's a guy who still kind of wears that on his sleeve. Brian Hartman is, you know, I don't want to say journeyman, but essentially a ranked file guy for most of his life, right? Um, why don't you want to say it, why don't you want to say journeyman, Joel? <laughs> uh, Wyndham Clark is another guy who's just his entire career is just something through is is fighting through injuries and heartache and, and Brooks Kepka, hell, he still wears you know his entire career is fueled by disrespect, right? Yep. Uh, real and perceived, and then. At the top of that is Zach Johnson, a guy who, you know, played lower level D1 golf, who no one really, you know, had to fight for everything he had to get. Um, maybe the, the most disrespected two-time major winner uh, of all time. So I I don't think this is something where, hey, like these are a bunch of alphas who now have to convince themselves that they're the underdog. I think this actually speaks to something a lot of these guys are used to, which might help just a little bit. Obviously not – all, all 12 guys, but I mean, even someone like Justin Thomas now, I think can go into that mindset of, I didn't make the postseason. A lot of guys think I don't deserve it. Or a lot of people are saying I don't deserve to be here. Um, I don't think they'll have to do the mental gymnastics to get into that underdog mentality. Yeah, I think that's right. I, and I think having that is sort of invaluable. It's like one of these weird things that actually really matters when you can come in with a chip on your shoulder. Europeans always have it. I think it, part of it's just, you know, playing America puts a chip on your shoulder. Uh, and now the Americans legitimately have it. I, you know, Paul McGinley recently said to me that I think what we need is a close rider cup more than anything. And I think this has the best chance of being that whistling straights all always felt like a blowout. I think Paris felt close and then turned out to be a blowout. Hazeltine always felt like a blowout. Glenn Eagles always felt like a blowout. Right. So do you agree that at the very least, this is our best chance in maybe a decade to have a, a really competitive that we're, we, you know, we're still outcome still going to be in doubt at 3 p.m. on Sunday. I mean, it's easy to say now, right? Um, and yet, despite all those blowouts, the best part about the Ryder Cup, or one of my favorite parts, is that there's always that like 40 minute window on Sunday when it still seems like anything can possibly happen. Um, and I, I can't think of the last time we've had a had an event where that that possibility wasn't in play. Um, you're right. Like on paper, you would think this is a, uh, would be a close matchup, but the Americans have fallen into this fallacy for better part of three decades of how are we not going to win? We look so much better on paper. Um, I, I do wonder, and Jamie, maybe you can speak a little bit to this. Um, in terms of the crowd makeup, obviously a lot of people will be coming. It should be a very pro Euro crowd. And yet it's not like a, a Italy is known for golf, right? Um, how, what are you expecting in terms of like transplants? I, I know Rome, you said it's easy to get to. Mm. Is there any worry that because this is in a site that even though it is Europe, it's not necessarily a, a pro golf area that maybe this crowd could be a little bit different than past Ryder cups. Uh, I don't think so. I think people get swept up in it when they get there. Um, it's certainly been my experience of like looking out on it from, past Ryder Cups and just you get yeah you just it's a swell of emotion and just it's like uh, I think Max Homer talked about it before it's just that it's a funny event because every fan on site is watching every shot and has a horse in the race for that specific shot so they have something to cheer for not necessarily something to boo for but it's something to sort of support against and that's a really interesting sort of atmosphere that's why I tell a lot of people that if they've ever liked being at a golf event the Ryder Cup's just like 100x because everyone is invested you know the first tee shot, you know, you know, isn't maybe that important in the grand scheme of things, but you're, you're so into it when they're hitting it. When they hit the fairway, you think, God, oh, we're going to win this. And when they miss the fairway, you think this is over. So um, 
I think uh, generally, yeah, it's, I, I don't know that many people in downtown Rome when we're sitting there having our glass of red wine at 10 p.m. are going to be asking us about the Ryder Cup. But, um, yeah, I think the, the crowd itself will be, and like like we said, they weren't able to go last time, so there's maybe some pent-up um, anticipation for it. So, And uh, and I'll be a fan, so if, if that's the case, I'll just, I'll just cheer really loud as, and cover everyone. All right, there are two <laughs> tiny children knocking at the door of my work shed, which I think means it's a good time to, <laughs> to wrap it up. They're just sort of staring in adorably, and I'm like, no, stay out. Uh, Jamie Kennedy, thank you so much for joining us, man. Thank you for filling in for LKD today. It was a pleasure. No problem at all. Thanks for having me. And Joel, as always, a pleasure with you too. And we'll, uh, we'll talk to you all next week. Have a good one.